Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at this passage that uh, talks about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Matthew 21. While you're turning there, I'm just going to mention again, as you notice here, we have these new screens and we made an adjustment this week. And I hope that it is better for those of you, especially that are in the front, I know it is, to be able to look across. And so we angled them so you could see them a little more clearly. And I think in the balcony, it's still a very good sight line. And I want to thank Jim Melko and Kevin Lovedahl for the work that they did uh, this week in making the change. They put in some extra hours. And uh, we really, really appreciate that. So thank you. All right. Listen to this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read uh, in chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus! the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you for it. What an awesome scene it must have been that day to witness the arrival of Jesus and the disciples and the multitudes who followed as they hailed him as the King, as the Messiah. Father, I pray that as we join together in looking at your word today, that you would speak to our hearts and that that joy, that amazement at who Jesus is would fill us this day. We ask that in his name. Amen. A good secret is hard to keep. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the disciples when they saw some of the miracles that Jesus performed and then Jesus told them, don't tell anyone? You know, can you imagine that? I mean, if you have really good news that you've heard, a family situation, an answer to prayer, or something exciting that you just learned about, isn't it your first response to want to tell somebody and share that excitement? Well, I think of how in Matthew's Gospel there were occasions, like in chapter 8 where Jesus healed a man who had leprosy, and he said to him, see to it that you don't tell anyone. Just go to the priest, present yourself so that he can declare you as clean, but don't tell anyone who did this. Or in chapter 9, when Jesus healed two men who were blind, and to their amazement they could now see, and yet Jesus said to them again, see to it that you don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone who did this. Wow. 
to the disciples after Peter's confession in Matthew 16 when Jesus had asked them, Who do men say that I am? And they gave various responses. Then he asked Peter, But who do you say I am? And Peter would say, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praised him for that response that had been revealed to him. But he warned them, Don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. Why? What was this about? And to the disciples after his transfiguration, that had to be one of the hardest things to witness and not be able to tell. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Elijah and Moses with Jesus. They saw Jesus' glory shine through this glory that he had with the Father. And then Jesus said to them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Can you imagine how hard that would have been? But now, on this day, on Palm Sunday, all of that began to change. There would be no more secrets. The time had come for Jesus to openly declare to the world that He is the Messiah. On this day, the world would see Jesus as they had not seen Him before. The key question in this passage is found in verse 10, and it's the question that Matthew wants all of us to wrestle with. It is the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? Because that's the question that all of us are going to need to answer when we stand before the Lord. What do we believe about Jesus? Have we come to believe that He is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world? And have I asked Him to be my personal Savior and Lord? Have I surrendered my life to Him? It's the key question. And what Matthew does in his Gospel is he shows us that Jesus is the rightful King of Israel who is coming to His capital city. Matthew also shows us how Jesus fulfills the three roles of the Messiah, the role of prophet, priest, and king. It was what the people of Israel were looking for because they believed that when the Messiah came, He would be the fulfillment of all of these hopes, all of the teaching of the Old Testament, and that this one would be that great prophet and priest and king. So let's take a look at what Matthew says in these passages about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the greatest of kings. And we see that in verses 1 to 11. Jesus and the disciples came toward Jerusalem from Jericho. Jericho is along the Jordan River to the east. It was the route that all of the pilgrims would take when they came to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And they would travel along the Jordan River partly because it was easier and partly because it was safer. And they traveled in a large company because now at Jericho they would make the turn to the west and they would make their way toward Jerusalem. It would be a journey of about 15 miles on foot through the Judean wilderness. It was rugged, it was barren and desolate. It was also not safe very often. Uh, There were robbers that were along the way, and so it was a good idea to travel in the company of others. And that's what the disciples did. It was a long uphill climb, about 3,500 feet in elevation it rises, from 850 feet below sea level at Jericho to about 2,600 feet above sea level at Jerusalem. 
But as you know, when you travel in the mountains, it's never a level, straight, steady incline. It's always up and down. And so it was a long journey. And they would sing along the way. They would encourage one another. They would read the Psalms of Ascents as they praised the Lord. And on this journey then, as they neared Jerusalem, they came to this small town called Bethpage, a small village on the east side of the Mount of Olives, about a mile from Jerusalem. Bethpage means house of figs, and that's going to be significant when we look at one of the later stories here about the fig tree that Jesus cursed and that withered. When they come to Bethpage, Matthew tells us that Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of him to find a donkey in her colt tied there. And he said, bring them to me. In the other Gospels, they mention only the colt that Jesus would ride on. Matthew often includes more details, and so he mentions both the colt and its mother. And if you think about it, if you were going to ride on a colt which had never been ridden before, and you are in this crowd of people that are cheering, one of the ways that you could keep that colt a little bit calmer would be to have its mother with it by its side. And so the disciples came and they brought the two animals to Jesus and they spread their cloaks on the colt and Jesus rode on it. There are two things I want you to note in this passage. One is that everything is under Jesus' control. He is the sovereign Lord. There are no surprises. He knows what is going to happen and he has prearranged for these things, the donkey, the colt, to be there. He orchestrates with the disciples the plans for the Passover celebration that they are going to have. Everything is under his control. And secondly, everything is intentional. His actions are intended to teach and to say something. And he understood, he knows the prophecies about the Messiah. And so on this day, he intentionally rides upon this colt into Jerusalem. You see, Zechariah the prophet had talked about the coming of Zion's king. In Zechariah 9 verse 9, he had said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, and see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people knew these prophecies well. And seven times in Matthew's Gospel, he's going to quote from Zechariah chapters 9 to 14, this section that all talks about the coming of the King, the coming of the Messiah. And Matthew's going to quote from there and say that Jesus fulfilled each of these prophecies. Well, when the crowd saw Jesus riding on a colt, they exploded with excitement. Palm branches were cut. The people began to shout their sounds and their worship and praise. They spread the palms on the ground in front of them. They placed their cloaks in front of Jesus. They began to wave these branches and the children joined in and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means, Lord, save us or save us now. It is a cry for the Messiah to come as King and to save His people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They shouted over and over again. Those words were familiar. 
They were ancient words that come from what are called the Hillel Psalms, the Psalms of Praise. They are Psalms 114 to 118. And these Psalms were sung at every Jewish Passover and had been for centuries. And those who came as families would meet and they knew these Psalms. They probably had them memorized and they would sing them, they would read them. They knew the words. They knew the meaning. This was about the Messiah. And Jesus was making a statement that day that He is indeed God's Son, the Messiah. Well, the sight of Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley must have been amazing. I mean, even today it is a beautiful sight to see. I have a couple of pictures here. This one is of the Mount of Olives looking toward the east from Jerusalem. And it is a gentle slope. As you come over that hill, Bethpage would have been just on the other side. And as you came over that hill and you came down, those in Jerusalem could have seen this procession. The throngs coming and shouting as they made their way. They could hear the singing of the people. And when you look the other direction, when you come over the Mount of Olives and you look at Jerusalem, you see this panoramic view of the Temple Mount. Today where the Dome of the Rock stands is where the temple would have stood. And just to the right in that picture, if you can make out the gate there that is sealed, it's a golden gate that one day Jesus will enter into Jerusalem through when He comes in His second coming. It is there. It is waiting for His return. The Mount of Olives stands about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. And when the people came down, those who would have been there at the temple and would have been looking toward uh, the Mount of Olives would have seen this great sight. And so when Jesus finally entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, Who is this? I mean, what's this all about? What, What is this? Who is this that has come? What are the people shouting? Who are they hailing as the King? And the answer came, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now Jesus had spent most of His ministry in Galilee. He had been to Jerusalem at different points in the three years that He ministered publicly. But most of His time had been in Galilee. And so they were affirming that this is the One who has come from Nazareth in Galilee. And His name is Jesus. When I read that passage about the whole city being stirred, I thought of how Matthew has framed this in his Gospel. At the beginning of his Gospel, when the Magi came into Jerusalem, the city was stirred then too. When they saw this procession of wise men who had come from the east and they came to find this one who had been born King of the Jews... And they asked the question, the Magi asked, where is this one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And they would find out that he would be born in Bethlehem. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, the question comes up again. When Jesus is questioned by the priests and the priests ask him directly, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, And Jesus will say, yes, I am. And in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And later, Jesus is questioned by Pilate and he stands before the governor and the Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus will reply, Yes, it is as you say. Matthew doesn't want us to miss it, does it? He wants us to know who Jesus is. And that by Jesus' very own words, along with his actions, he has declared himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah. But what sort of king is he? What sort of king is he that Zechariah would write about? He is a king who is righteous. He's a king who is good. He's a king who is humble and gentle. He rides on a colt into the city. He's not coming on this charger. He's not coming on a war horse. He comes not with an army of soldiers behind him, but he comes with his followers, his disciples. And he comes to bring salvation, to bring peace with God. That was his mission. That's why he came to be our Savior and to die in our place. But don't let that fool you. Because the day will come when He will return riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind Him. And on that day in the book of Revelation it tells us that on His robe and on His thigh He will have written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who Jesus is. And that day still awaits when He will come. When the Scriptures uses the phrase King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it is put in the way that in Hebrew you would express the superlative. In other words, King of Kings means that He is the greatest of kings or the best of kings. And the word Lord of Lords means that He is the greatest of lords or the best of lords. That's what Matthew is telling us. That Jesus is the greatest of kings. Secondly, Jesus is the greatest of priests. And we'll see another story that emphasizes that that follows. Let me read for us verses 12 to 17. Jesus entered the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Here we read how Jesus entered the temple area and he drove out those who were buying and selling there. And he made this statement that my house, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it A den of robbers. What was going on here? Well, there were two business transactions that were taking place on the Temple Mount. And they used the court of the Gentiles for this. 
this court that was to have been for all people to come and to worship the living God was kind of taken over by this commercial activity that was going on there. And those who did it may have thought they were performing a service. They were helping those who came to worship on that day. But it was a situation that was ripe for abuse. The two transactions taking place there were, first of all, the paying of the temple tax. Every person who came was to pay a tax, a half shekel that was required in order to support the work of the temple ministry. But foreign currencies were not accepted. So you needed to exchange your money. Kind of like if you travel out of our country and you go to another country and now you have to exchange dollars for whatever currency you need. Uh, You might do that at the airport or uh, you could do it at a bank, but you're going to pay a certain percentage to make that exchange. That's what was going on here. It was 6% they were charging if you wanted to convert your money to the local shekel. And if you want to change, it was going to cost you another 6% too. So these guys were taking advantage of the situation and charging those who had come to worship a very high exchange rate. And secondly, the other transaction involved the buying of a lamb or a dove for the sacrifice that you were to bring before the Lord. Now you could bring your own animal that you wish to sacrifice. If you were a shepherd, you could bring your own lamb. But there was no guarantee that it was going to pass the temple inspection. There was another opportunity for corruption there, for bribes or for people to take advantage of the situation. And they might find some blemish in the animal that you brought. And so you'd be forced to buy one of theirs in any case. And they were expensive. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at one Passover, there were 256,500 lambs that were brought into the city. Can you imagine that? 256,000 households that were going to come and celebrate Passover that needed a lamb for the offering to be made. That would be a pretty lucrative business if you were involved in that. The temple, the temple situation there had become big business. And again, the corruption was evident. And Jesus came and declares that my house is to be a house of prayer. You know, I think of a couple other notes when I read this passage of how many of the lambs that were brought to the temple for the sacrifice were raised in Bethlehem. That was one of the primary areas where these lambs were raised in the hill country, not far from Jerusalem. And I think of how Jesus, the Lamb of God, was born in Bethlehem. And this particular day that Jesus came in, it is Sunday to us, but to them, the Sabbath was over. This was like Monday morning. I mean, this is like the start of their work week. The Sabbath has passed. They're getting back at it. And this day was Lamb Selection Day. This was the day that you picked out that lamb that you were going to use for the offering that week. And on this day, Jesus, God's Lamb, came into Jerusalem. Matthew also includes these details of how as Jesus was there on the Temple Mount, the blind and the lame came to Him at the temple, and He healed them there. 
And isn't it amazing when Matthew writes how when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw these wonderful things that he did, and they heard the children shouting, their response was to be indignant. They wanted Jesus to silence the children, to stop all of this madness in their mind. And instead, Jesus quotes from the Scripture once again, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, God has ordained praise? What was Jesus doing here? Jesus came to His temple as a priest to purify and to call them back to God's intent. The temple is to be a place for prayer, for healing, for worship. I read that and I think about what is God's purpose for the church? What does God want our church to be? He wants us to be a place where we come to worship Him, to grow in our faith, to be instructed, where we come to pray, where we come to find healing and forgiveness and encouragement for the hurts and the wounds in our life. God wants us to be a place where our focus is upon Him. And what we see also in Jesus is that the primary duty of a priest was to represent God's people and to make atonement for their sin. The high priest under the old sacrificial system would do that once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies. But Jesus fulfills that as no one else could when he offered himself for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 7, the scripture says this, that unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Once for all. And Jesus is now seated at the Father's right hand where He lives to intercede on behalf of His children. He is the greatest of priests. He is a priest forever, the Scripture says. And thirdly, Jesus is the greatest of prophets. And we see an example of that in verses 18 through 22. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus was acting out a parable here once again. The cursing of the fig tree is a parable. It's a story meant to teach the disciples something very significant. Something about prayer. Something about His power and the power of prayer. Something that we can learn. The disciples were staying at Bethany about two miles east of Jerusalem and on their way back and forth, they would go through Bethpage, which again means house of figs. And so you would assume that there are probably a lot of fig trees there along the way. 
And Jesus saw this fig tree with leaves on it, and leaves were a sign that it should be producing fruit. When the leaves come out, it's an indication that there would be the early sweet figs. And Jesus was hungry, so he went over to the tree to get something to eat. But there was no fruit on it. And so he cursed this tree. It's not an act of pettiness. Jesus wasn't pouting, you know, and doing this as kind of a petty response. No. It was a message. A message of judgment. The fig tree is Israel. And they had a profession of faith, but no fruit. They had all the trappings, all the ceremonies, all of the religious things that you would have expected to be taking place. But they didn't have a relationship with God. With their lips, they worshipped God, but their hearts were far from Him. And just like the prophets of old, what Jesus was doing here was He was pronouncing God's judgment on Israel. The time had come when all of this sacrificial system would end. The time would come when Jerusalem would be overrun and the temple would be destroyed. Jesus was speaking about what was to come. Ezekiel was one of God's prophets in the Old Testament. And in his day, this is what he said about faithless Israel. He said, My people come to you as they usually do, and they sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. When all of this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Wow, what a powerful statement. Ezekiel saying that the people at that time were like those who like to listen to some good music. And you're like a, a person who sings a ballad, who sings a love song. And they like the sound of the music, and they like the words, but when they leave, they don't take it to heart. They don't put anything into practice. They have the appearance of being religious, but they don't really love God, and they don't really do what He says. It was a word of warning of what was to come, and now that day had come. Do those words sound familiar? I know that some of you recently have been studying the book of James, and we see something very similar in James. When he wrote, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. For anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, And after looking at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. James is giving that same kind of warning. Don't be a person who merely hears the words and then walks away and forgets what it said. But hear the word, take it to heart, put it into practice, and you will be blessed. These three offices of 
prophet, priest, and king all come together in one person in Jesus Christ. But the way in which he fulfilled them confounded many of the people at that time. I mean, when he entered Jerusalem on that day as a king, they were thinking and hoping that he was going to overthrow the Romans, that he would come with an army, and that by his might and power he would destroy their enemies, and Israel would once again be the the peak of the nations, sovereign over others. But that wasn't why Jesus came on that day. He did come as a king, but not to establish a monarchy but to bring peace between God and man. And He cleared the temple not to restore the institution and the sacrificial system that had been there for centuries past, but He came that day to announce that He is the true priest, the great priest who will offer the final sacrifice once for all time. And He pronounced judgment on Israel like the prophets of old, again, not to restore Israel, to be the chief of the nations at this time. But he came as the prophet who fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had said. And he came to enable his nation of disciples to live kingdom-empowered lives. J.I. Packer writes this about Jesus. He said, It is his glory given him by the Father to be in this way the all-sufficient Savior. We who believe are called to understand this and to show ourselves His people by obeying Him as our King, trusting Him as our priest, and learning from Him as our prophet and teacher. To center on Jesus Christ in this way is the hallmark of authentic Christianity. What should our response be? To obey Him, to trust Him, and to learn from Him. Jesus is the greatest of kings. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies and He will reign on David's throne and His kingdom will never end. He's the greatest of priests. The Scripture said, You are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek, without beginning, without end. And He is the greatest of prophets. When the Scripture said that I will raise up one who will be like Moses, this one who will be the voice of God, who will speak my words of truth, Jesus spoke like no one else did. He is the greatest of prophets. Let's pray. Father, as we look into Your Word, it is awesome sometimes when we come to see these things so clearly laid out. Matthew doesn't just have a collection of stories put together in a random way, but they have a powerful message to tell us about Jesus, about who He is and what our response should be to Him. And maybe you're here today and you've never heard things such as this. And God has spoken to your heart today and you've been touched, you've been moved by it. What will your response be to Jesus? Do you know Him as your Savior and Lord? Or is today the day when you will say to Jesus, Jesus, would you forgive me for my sins and come into my life and be my Savior? Or is today the day that you say to Jesus, I am sorry for the things that I have done. And Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness. And I pray that you would empower me, that you would cleanse me, that you would help me to live according to your word. 
I don't want to be like those who just listen to a love song and walk away and think, well, that, that was really, that was a good word, and then forget it. Jesus, I want to be like those who hear your word and put it into practice and it bears fruit in their life a hundred times over. God, would you help us to do that today? We know what we should do. And today we come and we give our life fully to you. Amen.